Why don't you ever share anything with us? I share stuff. Not about yourself, though. Yeah, you know everything about us. And we know nothing about you. Hmm. Fine. What do you want to know? The moment has arrived. I'm Tom Dickinson, and you are listening to the much-delayed Season 2 finale of The Moment, which is, quite literally, a podcast about Doctor Who. Each week on the show, I invite a guest, and we chat about a moment from an episode of Doctor Who that my guest has chosen. This week, I am joined by podcaster and author Graham Burke for a rule-breaking double moment. Graham selected not one, but two moments, the first of which brings us all the way back to Doctor Who's first season in 1964's The Edge of Destruction. This adventure features the first Doctor, his granddaughter Susan, and their unwilling companions, two schoolteachers named Ian and Barbara, who were whisked along with the TARDIS at the beginning of the season when the Doctor kinda sort of kidnapped them. It's complicated. In The Edge of Destruction, a two-part story set entirely inside the TARDIS, the Doctor's craft and its inhabitants begin acting strangely as the result of a mysterious force that takes over the TARDIS. Graham will get into that in just a bit. Graham's other moment takes place in 2005's The End of the World, featuring the Ninth Doctor and his companion Rose Tyler. For Rose's first ever trip in the TARDIS, the Doctor takes her to the far-flung future year of 5.5-slash-apple-slash-26, 5 billion years in the future, to see the day the Earth is destroyed by the expanding sun. And I'll let Graham take it from here. taking Rose on her first journey in time and space, overlooking Earth the day the sun expands because the money has run out to preserve the planet. And so now they're going to watch the planet explode. This is uh, the Ninth Doctor's idea of a first date, which is very, very telling, I think. At a certain point earlier on, uh, Rose sort of confronts the Doctor and asks him... Who are you then, Doctor? Who he is and where does he come from? What are you called? What sort of alien are you? I'm just a Doctor. Because I think she's sort of... Where are you from? What does it matter? Becoming increasingly aware of the alienness of the situation around her. And the Doctor... This is who I am, right here, right now, all right. Who is coming off the time war and is still grieving. All that counts is here and now, and this is me. Pretty much puts up a wall. He doesn't want to tell her who he is or where he came from. All right. She's sort of acquiesces. Don't argue with the designated driver. And we get to the end of the story and we come to my moment. <laughs> the doctor taking Rose, who has been completely overwhelmed by seeing her planet destroyed, and takes her back to Earth in the present day. You think it'll last forever? It's an ordinary street scene. People and cars and concrete. But it won't. One day it's all gone. Even the sky. And then the doctor just says it. He says, My planet's gone. And there's this great moment where dead. the doctor finally connects with Rose. It burned like the earth. And is prepared to actually explain to Rose who he is. Time it's a moment of connection that I think has the last of the time lords. really lasting impact because I think it's a moment that sort of I'm the only survivor. makes the doctor realize that he can trust another person. I'm left traveling on my own because there's no one else. He suddenly becomes willing to relate with humans again. And I think this has great impact on, on the Ninth Doctor's arc. That, but that's just one moment. 
I decided that I would bring some of Reality Bomb's uh, format bending uh, to the moment, and so I am bifurcating my moment. I am providing two parallel moments, as a matter of fact, and this moment, I think, parallels very nicely a similar moment with the first Doctor. So you have the first modern series Doctor, and then you can go all the way back to the first classic series Doctor. So The Edge of Destruction is this bizarre two-part story. It's a bottle episode, what we would call a bottle episode on modern television, where they only have the TARDIS set, and they need to sort of fill two episodes with this. So what they do is this bizarre Harold Pinter play, um, where the TARDIS has been accidentally set to go back to the very start of time. And instead of saying 404 error, your space-time ship is about to crash into the beginning of the universe. It actually decides to make everyone go psychotic. During this, everyone sort of ends up in these weird fugue states, including the Doctor's companions, Barbara and Ian, and his granddaughter, Susan. At one point, the Doctor, who is basically accusing them of spying and causing all these things on the ship... You're the cause of this disaster! And you both knocked, you doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but go with it. Ridiculous. We were all knocked out. You attacked At one point, Barbara just loses it. How dare you! And she says, Did you realize, you stupid old man, that you'd have died in the cave of skulls if Ian hadn't made fire for oh, you? I, I, and what about what we went through against the Daleks? Not just for us, but for you and Susan, too. And all because you tricked us into going down to the city. But and I, it's an amazing moment. Accuse us? You want to go down on your hands and knees and thank us. Where she just basically dresses down the doctor. Gratitude's the last thing you'll ever have, or any sort of common sense either. And it clearly knocks the doctor off his game, and an episode later, you get to the end of the episode where you get to moment number two. We have the doctor having to go... I'd like to uh, talk to you, if I may. Talk to Barbara and sort of make this rapprochement between them, and... Yes, you haven't forgiven me, have you? You said terrible things to us. Yes, I suppose it's the injustice that's upsetting you. I suppose it's this injustice that's upsetting you. I've always loved that line. (laughs) He just gets straight to the point. When I made a threat to put you off the ship, it must have affected you very deeply. And you're kind of going, well, no, Sherlock. And Barbara is still quite hurt. What do you care what I think or feel? And and the doctor says... We learn about each other, so we learn about ourselves. Perhaps. And the doctor oh, yes. goes on to make his point. Because I accused you unjustly, you were determined to prove me wrong. So you put your mind to the problem, and uh, luckily you solved it. And that moment becomes this moment of trust between the doctor and Barbara. And the thing about the doctor and Barbara that I, I don't think everyone sort of focuses on Barbara and Ian. And I get it, I get it. Even middle aged fanboys like me, we're all shippers at heart. We want to see Barbara and Ian get together, and I get that. You know, it's it's fine. They're, they're a total OTP or whatever the kids say. <laughs> But <laughs> the Doctor and Barbara have a really special relationship throughout the duration of Barbara's time in the TARDIS. You're watching the chase and they're, you know, while Ian and Vicky are out exploring, they're sitting out in the sand on this beach planet, basically. And What's that awful noise? Well, the Doctor's singing and she's mocking him for his singing. Pardon, and, awful noise is the way to talk about my singing. No, Doctor, not that awful noise. The other one, listen to They have a real close bond and they have that sort of throughout. I love how in the same way that Barbara manages to connect with the Doctor. So too does Rose connect with the Doctor. And I think the connections are basically the same. They make the Doctor sort of care more about humans. The Doctor is never high-handed towards human beings again for the duration of the classic series. He's, in fact, he's absolutely charming towards them. It may be irrational of me. And and loves them. But human beings are quite my favorite species. I think this goes to a fundamental point I love about Doctor Who. Doctor Who is, it's a profoundly humanistic show. For a show uh, about an alien, and, and the Doctor is very alien, but the 
the Doctor is an alien who cosplays as a human. Mm. And I think this is an important element that isn't discussed enough. This guy could have dressed like Mork from Ork, for God's sakes. He could, you know, he could have worn a silver jumpsuit or frilly capes or whatever. But no, he, he, this Doctor dresses like an Edwardian gentleman. You get Christopher Eccleston and he's in his battered leather coat. They dress like humans. Mm. And I think that's because the Doctor is attracted to humanity. And I think there's an interesting relationship about the Doctor and humanity. And I think there's an interesting optimism for humanity as a subtext within Doctor Who. And so for me, yeah, these are two great moments where the Doctor learns to be human um, and the Doctor learns the joys of human connection. One thing you said that kind of, you compared it to a pinter play. Um, (laughs) You know, I think just watching these two episodes back to back, it reminds me a lot of how much early 60s Doctor Who, as well as a lot of British television of that era, how indebted it is to like the theatrical tradition. Whereas if you look at the end of the world, that's about as Star Wars as Doctor Who had ever been to that point. Like, this is our room full of aliens. They're just so alien. The aliens are so alien. You look at them. It's very much trying to evoke the big-budget space opera look and feel. And I'm kind of wondering how you think the sort of shift in storytelling style from the very earliest days of the classic series to the earliest days of the new series, how that changes the way this particular shift in relationship comes across, how it impacts the viewer. I think in some ways it is radically different. You sort of go from the sort of proscenium arch method of watching television where where it's very theatrical. And this is the most theatrical, <laughs> I, I would argue, Doctor Whoever is in The Edge of Destruction. I don't think the end of the world is necessarily a spectacle for its own sake either. I mean, obviously, it has more special effects shots than any Doctor Who story since uh, ever made. But uh, at the same time, it has these great scenes like... What's your name? Like Rose with Becky Armory's character, Raffalo. Raffalo. Mm. Raffalo. Yes, Beth. Which I think is one of the greatest scenes in Doctor Who. And if I had not picked these two moments, I probably would have picked it. Because it's this great little theatrical scene where they basically try to connect Rose and her world and the year five billion. So you're a plumber? Through... That's right, miss. This plumber. You still have plumbers? Uh, I hope so. And I think that was a very late addition to the script, if I recall. It was. It was indeed. It was because the script was running short. And so Russell T. Davis just threw in this great little scene. And that's the genius of Doctor Who, I think, is that where Russell goes with a scene like that is to just say, well, let's do a scene about connections between people and about and about relationships. And I think for all the spectacle, the end of the world is about the relationships between the characters. You have the relationship between the Doctor and Rose. You have the relationship between the Doctor and Jade. You have this great little moment with Raffalo and, and, and Rose. And all of them sort of say something about the worlds they come from and all of them sort of crash into each other in ways that change the characters and move the characters and make them understand things. So Where are you from, miss? Raffalo makes Rose understand Long way away. what is going on right now with me and this guy I just traveled with. I just sort of hitched a lift with this man. I think that's just good drama. I didn't even think about it. Don't even know who he is. It's a complete stranger. That's the sort of drama that was being done in 1963. It was a different paradigm of drama, obviously. I mean, Sidney Newman, Doctor Who's creator, arguably, um, well, frankly, I wrote a book that says he is, so there. <laughs> Newman was very much an acolyte of the idea of the televised play, which is a sort of dead art form now, which is rather a shame. But I, I think this is very much sort of in that tradition of, of story, The Edge of Destruction. But I think at the same time, it, it's, it's about drama. There's a situation that we don't understand, and it's only through these characters sort of pushing the doctor to sort of get off his script that 
somehow in his adult mind, these people are trying to destroy the ship. And they also have that sort of influence on the Doctor, and they also have that sort of influence on each other. And so I think at the end of the day, it's all about the drama. And that's what I love about Doctor Who. It is, it is a show that no matter what era you're in, it's trying out what are the ideas of drama for that time. But ultimately, the drama of its time is about characters influencing each other. So I'm going to ask you to speculate on a writer's state of mind, <laughs> by which I mean I'm going to ask you if you think that Russell T. Davies was consciously influenced by The Edge of Destruction when he was writing the first series of Doctor Who. Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. I, in many ways, I think there's a case to be made for it because certainly I remember when he sort of gave a list of stories for uh, Julie Gardner to watch. I remember that Unearthly Child is one of mm. them. So certainly, certainly early Hartnell was in his wheelhouse and certainly he had it in mind. And I think the thing about it is that we all sort of think that the idea of the companion as less a sort of subsidiary character and more an actual sort of full-on lead is something with a modern series. But honestly, I think uh, the casting of Jacqueline Hill and, and William Russell back in the 60s, I think, is the first example of it. I mean, Doctor Who was meant to sort of have those two as the putative leads. Definitely. And Hartnell was, to a certain extent, also there, but he was also, it could be a more of a, a colorful third wheel. And I think Barbara and Ian are very much in the sort of, they fulfill the same role as Rose does in the drama. They're there to be an audience identification figure, but they're there to be leads in the show, too. Yeah. That really doesn't answer your question at all. But. <laughs> well, what I was kind of thinking of is that, you know, depending on whether you want to count Susan, I'd say there are three or four leads because Susan kind of is relegated to that subsidiary role, kind of. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's an additional lead in, in the show, kind of, especially in this particular two-parter, which is the TARDIS as character. A machine that can think for itself? Yeah. The TARDIS as, you know, an agent with a will and a, a power at the heart of it. Is that feasible, Doctor? Oh, think not as you or I do, but... Uh... It must be able to think as a machine. And the notion that that power can be, frankly, kind of terrifying. What's that like? The heart of the TARDIS. That's also an idea that I think Russell T. Davies picked up on. You've opened it so. Especially in series one of Doctor Who, in Boomtown, into the finale. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I do think that picks up from that. I mean, it doesn't pick up on the fact that apparently... It was the switch. It was still in place. You just accidentally set a button and don't replace the spring and, and it still presses it. See, there's a little spring inside it and it was stuck. It hadn't released itself. Apparently, it will drive everyone insane instead of just saying, <laughs> error, please replace spring and fast return switch. Yeah. I would love to see, honestly, more silly little mechanical aspects of the TARDIS breaking down in Jodie Whittaker's run because she's kind of proven herself to be... Is, is it your own design? I made it. Mainly out of spoons. Someone of, like, a hands-on mechanic kind of doctor. Yeah. You're an inventor. I have my moments. I knew it. And so it'd be kind of nice to see her having to deal with like, you know, a, a loose rivet or <laughs> or some some really like stupid mechanical thing that causes strange psychedelic things to happen to people. Hey, any opportunity to see Jodie Whittaker in welding goggles is a good day for <laughs> So Barbara and Rose are not characters that often get compared to one another. No. I'm kind of curious to know whether you think they are similar as companions. In some ways, yes. I think you'd be surprised at how many parallels there are to their journey. I think you can also equally parallel the Aztecs with Father's Day. Yeah. Both are stories where they want to change history in some drastic way. Barbara, being a history teacher, has just decided to go pick saving the Aztecs and trying to stop, you know, Cortez before he arrives. Rose 
Rose goes a little more personal and wants to save her father. But they both have very similar moments where, where the doctor gets exasperated with him. You have, you, know, you have the first doctor but say, you can't rewrite history, not one line. And you have the doctor and Rose having that big fight in Father's Day. I did it again. I picked another stupid eight. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a remarkable kind of parallel tracks between them. Are they similar characters? I think in this respect that I think both have a tremendous sense of humor about themselves and about the doctor. I think they both have very inquisitive minds about things and, and I love those kind of qualities. Beyond that, I mean, I think Barbara's more of more of a middle-class post-war era product of her society. Mm. You know, whereas I think Rose is confusing because as Stephen Moffat once said to me, they really want to make her kind of seem lower middle class. But honestly, someone as smart as her would have probably gotten her GCSEs and gone to university. Like she, so it's this sort of TV version of uh, of lower middle class. This is sort of identifiable EastEnders kind of quality to her. Mm. But I do think in many ways they are, they are quite similar. Regarding the end of the world, the moment you picked from that story, not only is it this kind of interesting moment of connection between the Doctor and Rose, it's also a moment where the Doctor reveals something to the audience. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> he reveals the Time War and the fact that he is the only Time Lord left in existence. Yeah. Or so he thinks. <laughs> yeah, or so he thinks, yes. And, and I think it's an interesting... Uh, I mean, I joked about it at, at, at the top where I said this is this is the doctor's idea of a first day. Mm. I think taking her to the day the earth blows up it makes sense because he wants to try and make her understand who he is, but he doesn't know how he wants to do it yet. And he doesn't know if he can do it. And I don't even know if I'm looking at the characters within the drama itself. I don't even know if the doctor is even articulating this on, a, on any kind of conscious level. I think it's just an, it's one of those things that you do if you, instinctively, mm. like you're trying to show something and you get through the episode and, and he's put up the walls and, and all of a sudden the walls kind of come down one by one. And when they're on earth, it's, it's, it's this interesting moment because when the doctor says that, you know, his, his own people, he was a time where he's the last, all, all everyone's gone you know people don't say oh my god does this mean that we can't have the invasion of time ever again like <laughs> like no one's saying that because the emotional beat of that scene is so much more important the doctor says you think it'll be all forever cars and people and concrete and one day it's all gone and i love that line like even the sky yeah it's an immediate kind of look around you my people are gone my sky is gone my planet is gone and, and this is who i am i'm alone and I think this is a tremendous admission for him. He doesn't want to admit. He kind of wants to admit it. I think he wants to, he kind of wants to admit it before he even admits it. And he can sort of see from the fact he took her to Earth in 5 billion, just as it's about to blow up, that he wants to. But it's that moment when he, when the intention finally kicks in with what's in his heart. And that's powerful drama. I, I love that. It's telling an important piece of the, of the mythology to come for sure. But it's done to actually further the emotional content of the scene and to bring the Doctor and Rose closer. It's glorious. It's a glorious ending. Yeah. In both cases, each moment, the Doctor is cut off from the Time Lords. And in the case of The Edge of Destruction, it's by virtue of the fact that they haven't been invented yet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he doesn't have a people yet. And the only thing we really know about them is what's laid out in An Unearthly Child, where he indicates that... Susan and I are cut off from our own planet, without friends or protection. He has been... But one day... Cut off from them. He wants to go back, can't, yes. and hopes one day that he'll be able okay. to. And here, one day. we have the Doctor 
freshly off the time war. So in both moments, the doctor is approaching his companion from the position of being maybe in the greatest state of isolation or being a loner. Those are the two deepest points maybe at which we've we've ever seen him that way. Oh, I think absolutely that's it. We don't know at what point the show starts that how long the doctor has been traveling on his own with, with Susan. At the same time, I mean, he has come from a people that for whatever reason he cannot be with anymore. And, and yeah, I think in both cases, it's, it's about taking that sort of risk of caring for someone, of that risk of trusting someone. And as you say correctly, I think both times the character is, is at their lowest point and, and looking for a way to connect. And then there are times when, when the Doctor is almost operating within like a family structure. The Third Doctor era with Unit. I is take a, it you're yet another member of the Unit team. Yes. Depressing, isn't it? He's a great example of that. I mean, you could also say there's almost sometimes like a sitcom feel about the Fifth Doctor and his companions. Tired of being considered a joke. Oh, no one thinks that. Then why am I constantly teased? Yeah. The Eleventh Doctor. We're about to have Christmas dinner. Very much has a family built up if around no him. no trouble, there's a place set for you. And I'm curious to know whether you enjoy more watching the Doctor operate from this position of isolation like you're seeing here, or from those sort of contrasting instances where he's part of a community. I must say, one of the things I've always loved about Doctor Who is the, is the sort of sense of found family that the Doctor always does. You mm-hmm. know, inevitably, he, he finds someone to travel with, he finds someone to share things with, and I think, yes... There are times when I've enjoyed uh, the Doctor more in isolation. I mean, yeah. I thought the Deadly Assassin is brilliant, and I love the first episode of The Face of Evil, where it's basically the Doctor. Little look around, Doctor. Why not? Is having to talk to himself because he, he has literally no one with him. And the Tenant specials, where where he's traveling around, constantly sort of traveling around. Those are great, but I like those as kind of one-offs. I thought it was better. Though. And I much prefer the sort of doctor with his found family of that particular moment, whatever that is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, being alone is part of a found family narrative, the part where you haven't found your family yet. Exactly. (laughs) Or the part where you're temporarily cut off from your family. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. No, that's precisely it. I think that's the lovely kind of natural cycle of of Doctor Who. There's the period where you're alone and then all of a sudden you find an Amy Pond. Mm. (laughs) And then then Brewery comes in and then then you're all traveling around in bunk beds. Doctor, this time could we lose the bunk beds? No, bunk beds are cool. A bed with a ladder. You can't beat that. Yeah, it's, it's cute. And then I don't do this anymore. He's alone again. I've retired. And the cycle continues. And I kind of love that about Doctor Who because I think that's very, very much how my life has been. You know, there's been periods where I've had profound disconnection from people or I've lived away from my family or, and then there's times when things come together and, and, and it's really great. So I can identify with that a lot. Yeah, the Amy Pond example is great because in the scene where he's first talking to young Amelia, he says something like, I don't even have an aunt. And she says, You're lucky. And then he says, I know. It's it's this really interesting, different attitude because sometimes the notion of shedding those old connections and finding a new one, that's, that's another part of that story. Oh, I know. And there's a scene at the end where he's saying... I've been knocking around on my own for a while, my choice, but I've started talking to myself all the time. It's giving me earache. And, and you're just kind of like going, well, that's a change from, from you know, sometimes they just break your heart. They break my heart. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that's, that's very true of the human experience as well. You can go through periods where I don't want to be with anyone because they break your heart and then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I've been, I've been a alone for too long and I need to and I need people. I love that Doctor Who sort of does that sort of cycle so well. So jumping back to Edge of Destruction. I think it's really Barbara who kind of Perhaps we've been given nothing else but clues. Has the central insight that solves the problem. Yeah. The machine wasn't at fault, we were. And it's been trying to tell us so ever since. Whereas I, I believe there were uh, earlier drafts of the script where it was Ian and Barbara that came at it together. Yeah. 
Do you think that was an improvement to have it just rest solely on her? I think so. I think so. I think it makes it more dramatic. There is a point where it's her hands off to Ian, but it's it's a much more organic handoff, I think. I think if you split up the role between two people, it becomes more diffuse. And I think you don't get the payoff of the doctor apologizing without apologizing. <laughs> Let's face it, he is true to form. He doesn't get good at apologizing until he becomes a she. Of course you're right. Sorry. But I, I don't think you have the sort of sweetness of that scene where they, by the end of it, they're joking about a... You know, I acquired that other Ian's Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> From Gilbert and Sullivan? Cloak and... Oh, really? I thought it was made for two. His infamous oh. cloak and stuff like that without it being mostly focusing on Barbara. And I think that's just a function of good drama. And I think David Whitaker was a very, very canny drama writer. And I don't think people give him enough credit. You know, his script editing, I think, was largely to try and find ways to sort of make those dramatic moments sing more and to make the drama of a scene sort of be punchier. And I think that's a clear influence on the first year of Doctor Who that I would totally credit to Whitaker's skill as a story editor. So the Doctor says that line that you quite rightly highlighted because it's kind of a beautiful line. As we learn about each other, so we learn about ourselves. What is it that you think he learns about Barbara in The Edge of Destruction? I think he actually explains it immediately after. It's the tenacity because the Doctor is so out to get her that she's determined to prove him wrong. And I think it's that she keeps at it and keeps at making him try to realize that. So I think he learns about the value of human tenacity and that, you know, these people aren't just simpletons from some bygone age that is barely worth consideration and presumably the doctor up until that point would have just simply dumped them somewhere eventually. Mm. His reaction to them leaving in the chase is a man who does not want to see these people he loved go. And he really has to listen to Ian and Barbara to sort of let them go do it. And now we have a chance to go home. We want to take that chance. Will you help us? I don't think you'd get there without him sort of at first realizing that, you know, these people have something to contribute and these people are definitely smarter than he'd given them credit for. So that's what he learns about them. But what is it you think to reflect back that he learns about himself through that? I think he learns the great thing about the doctor as a character is he's a wonderful champion of lateral thinking. He's a wonderful champion of what's around the corner. How do I figure this out? And if and if my experience is wrong, then what's wrong with my experience and what's wrong with this situation and i think that's what in the in the edge of destruction that's that's how barbara and ian goad the doctor into doing the doctor eventually comes to a point where he sort of puts all the pieces together and it's a gloriously theatrical scene where everyone sort of bounces back and the spotlights on hartnell in that great theatrical pose and he's putting it all together and i think he's learned that you know he learns from barbara's tenacity that just because this is what he thinks it is it doesn't necessarily mean it, ha- it is that and that there are other possibilities and that there there are other ways of looking at it and sometimes it's as simple as your machine has got a broken spring and it's <laughs> it's driving everyone insane instead of saying hey look fix the spring so what do you think the uh the ninth doctor learns about rose and about himself oh uh i think he learns to trust someone i think that's a very important thing i think that's so i think that's what he learns about himself that it's okay to say that he's a time lord it's okay to say that it's he's the last of his people it's okay to open up to someone else with his pain it's remarkable that you even exist because you know, the thing is with Jade, I just want to say, he cries. Mm. How sorry I am. But he doesn't actually acknowledge what she said in any way. 
things. It's just him sort of internally acknowledging it. It's with Rose that he actually acknowledges his pain. And I think what he learns about Rose is that Rose is worthy of that trust and that Rose is willing to stick with him and that Rose is so moved by the situation where she sees the planet gone and she's just so broken by it. And I think he sees in that moment of brokenness something similar to his own that gives him the strength to actually admit who he is and what happened to him. That about wraps it up for the moment this season. Thank you very much to Graham Burke, who you can find over on Twitter at Graham Burke. That's G-R-A-E-M-E-B-U-R-K. Graham produces the excellent Doctor Who podcast, Reality Bomb, which you can find at realitybombpodcast.com. He is also the co-author, along with Robert Smith, of several books about Doctor Who, including one that comes out next month. It's called Who is the Doctor 2, and I've had the chance to read some of it, and it's a good one. You can find the link to buy it on Amazon over in the show notes at themomentpod.com. And while I'm thanking Graham, I might as well rethink all of the other guests from this season of The Moment, which of course include Chip Sutterth, Rachel T., Deb Stanish, myself, guest hosted by Joy Piedmont, Connie Gibbs, Chase Lilly, Human Sadri, Sage Young, Kathleen Showalter, Moises Chuyan, Erica Ensign, and Michaela McMonico. You can find out more about this show, including past episodes, at themomentpod.com, or follow the show on Twitter at themomentpod. I would love it if you'd tweet at me with your thoughts about the show, especially if they're positive, and especially if you've got someone in mind that you'd love to hear on the show next season. I'm always looking out for new folks to consider for being on the show. You can also support the show by leaving a rating and review in your podcast marketplace of choice, especially if that choice happens to be Apple Podcasts, because apparently reviewing the show there really helps somehow. I've never, I've never really understood how that works. If you'd rather support the show with currency, you can head on over to patreon.com slash themomentpod and sign up to be a patron for the next season of the show. Or if you're in a hurry to give me your money before then, you can always chip in over at Kofi. That's ko-fi.com slash themomentpod. Also, this week is the Gallifrey One convention in Los Angeles. I'll be there. If you're there, please keep an eye out for me, because I will have ribbons. Relax. Enjoy ribbons. Oh, we are. So will you please Thank you once again for the admirable patience that you've shown as the latter half of this season has trickled out. Keep your podcatcher dialed into the feed for season three of the moment, starting sometime later in 2020. I don't know when, sometime. In the meantime, in the immortal words of the Doctor, Quite lucky if you got off my ship now. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back when the moment arrives. Oh.